It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Safeway makes it easy to save at the pump with your club card because you can use up to 20 cents per gallon in Safeway gas rewards at participating Chevron and Texaco stations. Get more mileage out of your grocery budget, up to 20 cents per gallon. When you shop more at Safeway, you save more at Chevron and Texaco. Maximum reward at participating Chevron or Texaco stations is 20 cents per gallon in a single fill-up, up to 25 gallons. Cannot be combined with any other Safeway gas reward offer. Restrictions and exclusions apply. See complete details at Safeway.com or in-store. Was the finals an epic collapse or a LeBron-Kyrie beast fest? Will Mike Conley end up in the East? And does Oladipo's arrival prevent Durant's defection? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I am excited to bring on the show today Sam Amick, who is the NBA reporter for USA Today Sports and a guy plugged into just about any kind of information you're going to want on the NBA. So, Sam, thanks for joining us today. Nick, long time no talk. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, it's been too long. We'll probably have to chop it up at Summer League if we can. I, I imagine you'll be there. I think I'll, I'm going to be there in some capacity. This summer, though, is the schedule is a little more jam-packed than normal. I, I'm going to be part of the, the Rio train. So I'm going to the Olympics in August, and so that has me second-guessing my summer league schedule a little bit. So I don't know when I'm going to be in Vegas because, as you know, they do summer league, is, and then they piggyback the Team USA camp right after that. So i got to find a way to to check all those boxes without being on the road the whole time. After these last couple months covering the playoffs and whatnot, it's been pretty road-heavy. So I'll be there at some point, and uh, I look forward to seeing you. Yeah, I hear you. You know, it's funny because I was really looking at going down to Rio to cover it as well. And I don't know. I just feel like it's, it's, I'm too nervous right now about the state of, uh, of, the, of the country. And I just feel like I don't know, if it, uh, you know how positive an experience it, it would be. I'm with you. I've got some concerns myself. I've been trying to learn more about the situation and in and, and the context of our company. We have quite a few people going there, as you can imagine, obviously yeah. covering all sports. Uh, myself and Jeff Zilgit, who I cover the NBA with, are both scheduled to go. And so, you know, right now we're still planning on going. And, you know, what I've heard is this would be my first Olympics, but Jeff has actually covered quite a few. And, you know, you've got the Olympic Village and you've got kind of the infrastructure that's going to be set up that is intended to make the media feel comfortable. And, and this year, perhaps more than ever, what I'm hearing is that, it, you know, we're going to have to go to work, do your work, stay in your lane, don't go down any of the dark alleys, don't get off the beaten path, you know, just keep it on the straight and narrow and, and you should be fine. But listen, every day there's some new story coming out about how much of a train wreck the whole Rio situation is. So I'm still kind of monitoring it. Okay, well, uh, safe travels when you're there. I'm looking forward to what you come back with and what you report from there. So. Well, let's talk a little bit about the finals because you were on the ground, boots on the ground, covering this thing for the whole time. And, uh, you know, I, I'm curious. Let's just throw this out here. I've been taking so much heat on, on, on you know, on Steph Curry and how he played. And I guess I'm the lightning rod for some reason. But 
What did you think? Was this an epic collapse or LeBron beast mode slash Kyrie? A little bit of both. I know that's the not so you know that's the politically incorrect answer or politically correct answer rather. Yeah. But it was both, man. I I'd be lying to you if I didn't say you know the, the Cavs wanted. I give them a ton of credit. It was incredible to watch, especially LeBron and then Kyrie in Game Seven was unbelievable and it was epic stuff. But it still it just doesn't sit well with me. The, just the Draymond Green situation. I just I think it's unfortunate. And I'm not even saying that I disagree with the league's decision. Um, I just I'm still chewing on what I think of that part of the story and the fact that, you know, the finals, you work all season long and some of these players in this league are never going to play in an NBA finals. And so Draymond throws down Michael Beasley in the first round. He nails Steven Adams in the crotch in the conference finals. I'm forgetting that. Oh, was it? No, it wasn't Pat Beverly. I forget. He had one other one. So you have the, the, the NBA's flagrant foul point system that obviously Draymond ultimately pays the price for and with, and he has that play with LeBron where LeBron steps over him and, and he throws his arm up. I just, I, I'm disappointed by the mere idea that something that seemed to be so like relatively innocuous wound up playing such a big part in this series. Cause I, I agree with Draymond. I don't know if the Warriors would have won game five, but we'll never know. And I can't blame a guy like that for feeling that way if he hadn't been suspended how would this story have been different but at this point it is what it is the Cavs took advantage of it and got the job done well did you feel um you know and, and if, if anyone didn't see the play you know LeBron steps over him after throwing him down and that I think that was that was my problem was that it should have been called a foul right away and the referees kind of allowed it to progress um did you feel that LeBron was doing that because he was aware of the point system and they were, you know, this was going to be the, the brink of their season. And, you know, normally you'd see, you know, they used to put guys like Greg Kite in the game to like mix it up and try and get Kareem to do something. Is this what you saw happening? Or was this just a happenstance where LeBron just kind of happened to walk over him and didn't recognize what might have happened? I mean, bottom line, only LeBron knows. But what I can tell you is that in the moment, I thought LeBron was just so unhinged and was lacking composure because of how badly he and the Cavs were getting beaten. But as a couple days unfolded, I found my opinion changing, where I look back on it going, I don't know if I was giving this guy enough credit. I think that might have been extremely deliberate and a you know desperate times call for desperate measures type of thing. Because you look at it, and if he did mean to do it, it, you say what it it was genius. I mean, I can't fault him for trying. If you knew that a guy was close to getting suspended, and there's no way he didn't know that. Everybody was talking about it and writing about it. Then you chuck him on the ground, get a little reaction out of him, do the step over, and that's one of my hangups with kind of the way the league seemed to perceive that situation was. Um, I, I'm not trying to sit here and act like this is high school basketball and it's all machismo and. And, and that type of thing. But, like, the step over to me is kind of a big deal. And there were people with the league office that just flat out overlooked that and just did not think much of it, didn't think that it was worthy of a reaction, didn't agree with Charles Barkley when he came out and said that you're, you know, obligated as a man to, to fight back if somebody does that. And I'm probably closer to Charles in, in terms of viewpoint than I am the league office. And that's the part where I think Draymond got put in a really, really tricky situation because, yes – you know, to his credit, he's taken the high road. He's taken accountability. He said that he has had to learn the hard way to control his emotions. 
But in that instance, I can't say that I blame him for, for reacting. I mean, it's, it was very unnatural for LeBron to go that direction and to step over him like he did. And if he did mean to do it, he certainly got what he wanted. Did you think that, you know, when I watch it, a bunch, it changes every time I watch it, and I can't quite get a handle on what I think really happened there. But, it, you know, in theory, Draymond was pushing him off. And somehow, the, you know, the contact goes to the groin area in what I guess could appear like a punch. But, like, I guess that's the other thing is it just kind of looked like he wanted to kind of push him off of him. And that's what happened. It kind of reminded me, remember, of the, uh, the uh, Zebo suspension with Steven Adams? Yep. You know, and we went through that. And, and I believe, as I, you know, Zebo did get suspended for that as well, even though it sort of was more like a get away from me, push separation thing. All right, my fingers are now pointing inwards to my, right. to my fist. Right. What right. did you think about that? No, I'm with you. I mean, you can break all this stuff down like the Zabruder film, and that's what ends up happening. And I just... I don't know. I mean, again, I go back to the fact that when you slow anything down, it's going to look worse than it did in real time. And then just I I can relate and kind of sympathize with that human feeling of anybody being on your back. Anybody like there's something about that. And, you know, it's it's a, a weird comparison to even bring up. But I remember last year during the finals, I was out at a, a bar having a couple drinks with people and a, and a colleague, I, I won't, I won't throw him under the bus on your podcast here, Nick. But a, a colleague of ours was just joking around, and he came up, and I didn't know he was there, and he like put me in a headlock, and like I, I was pretty sure that the guy doing it was someone I knew, and it was, you know, and it was, uh, it was no big deal. But, I, but because I didn't know who it was, and I didn't like that feeling, like I reacted, and I turned around and shoved the guy. Where it's like there's just something unnerving about having somebody on your backside. And so, I mean, Draymond's green, uh, Draymond's reaction, rather, it wasn't like he went crazy. He didn't sit there and point a finger in his face or, or keep it going. But, you know, I just think it's a lot to ask to not have him react at all. Here's an interesting question. Had the referees, okay, they missed the call, which I thought they should have made with LeBron kind of throwing him at the ground. But let's just say after, they, after um, Draymond kind of pushed him away, if they had just called it a foul, stopped the play there, does the league even get involved in a review that might have made it a flagrant foul? Yeah. No, I'm, I mean, I'm with you. And, and not only that, it's just the fact that I don't like how we seem to be somewhat arbitrarily deciding which plays deserve this kind of scrutiny. And a lot of times, and this is a complaint I know on the Warriors' side, the cause and effect winds up being very heavily, or at least their perception is, very heavily tied to the media component. You know, what's trending on Twitter what plays are getting everybody's attention all of a sudden becomes that's worthy of the league office's attention. That's, and you know, the league predictably says they don't agree. That's not the case. But I think that's another complaint among a lot of NBA fans is that the arbitrary nature with, the, with which they legislate some of this stuff, and especially in that kind of a moment that it's just got the stakes are so incredibly high. I mean, if you had to put a number on it, Nick, like <clears throat> missing a finals game, I mean, what is that worth in the regular regular season? I mean, that's like 20 regular season games. I mean, that's yeah. a massive, massive penalty to lose a, a finals game, especially for a guy like Draymond. I mean, you got to legislate no matter who it is, but a guy like that who means so much to his team, it was just a huge blow. Do you hear about Kiki Manaway's wife being upset about this? I did. In fact, um, one of our folks on our desk, I think, unless I'm wrong, I think we were the only news outlet to to kind of aggregate that story and we didn't even do it till a day later 
uh, when they got their hands on her tweet because, yeah, she had tweeted out that, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, having a, a marital argument about what to do with Draymond. And it was a terrible move on her part because she tagged uh, LeBron and Draymond and, and even tagged a couple of ESPN reporters saying, what do you guys think? And, and that's, that's opening up Pandora's box in a way that I, I don't think she intended to. But even including ESPN, that's dangerous because ESPN is partners with the NBA. It almost has the perception of, I mean, a lot of conspiracy theorists looked at it and said, ESPN wants more games, so they're going to suspend Draymond. They don't want this thing done in five. So for her to tag some ESPN folks was not a smart move. You know, she deleted the tweet, and, you know, I know the league was not real happy with that. But, but yeah, I did see that. Wow. Yeah, no, it's interesting because now we're talking about Zabruder film, and we're talking about conspiracies here. So uh, there's a lot, a lot of interesting things happening. And, uh, you know, my only re- response to when people were yelling at me about that on Twitter, about this notion of conspiracy, is that, I don't know, like, in theory, would we ever have a sweep if that was the case in, in any playoff series? Well, I mean, in any playoff series, sure. I don't, I don't, and I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to even go too far down this road, but I mean, you know, the finals are a different ball of wax. And, you know, if you, if you were a league that, that, you know, that got into the mud with this kind of a stuff, you know, or even WWE style where it's all transparent, that it's all scripted, you know, you're not going to, I don't know that you can try to quietly control every single round. Um, So a sweep, in in some fashion, sure, I could see it. I just think that it's it's just it's just tough, man. The way they legislate this stuff, um, and and to be honest, this is just recent history. I think part of what's driving this is that in recent history, a lot of the moves, a lot of the decisions that have been made, they are very kind of conveniently timed with, or, or you know, in accordance with what best benefits the business of the NBA, and that absolutely likely is just coincidental. But I think from the fan standpoint, that's where they look at it and say, you know, the, the the parallel that people kept drawing was like, okay, Draymond could have got a flagrant two when he smacked Steven Adams in the crotch. They could have gone that route and uh, had him miss a game, but then the Warriors were in a 3-1 hole and it would have made life even tougher on the defending champs. So you do a flagrant one, you don't have to get him out of the game, you know, and you have a better series because of it. And then with the Cavs, it was the opposite scenario, and obviously they put them on the bench for a game. Right, and and, and this the, the the final nail in this this part of the discussion that we'll have is yeah, that uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen a non-call be upgraded to a flagrant. That was the other thing that was very strange. Um, I I don't think you've ever seen that either, have you? I haven't, and I don't. I mean, I I hate to admit this. I need to do a crash course during the off season on some of these rules because it's right when I felt like. I had a, a grip on the material and really had clarity on how a certain situation was supposed to be called. I'd learn something new, and they'd say, no, that's not the case. You can do this. You can do that. I mean, they were, you know, some – you got Stu Jackson who had kind of a, a falling out with the league and and it doesn't work for the NBA anymore. And he's, you know, previously he was the guy levying all this discipline, and he's tweeting stuff that was quickly getting refuted by the NBA. Um, so there's a lot of layers to this thing. Every time there was a controversial call – you had people trying to not only chime in, but to truly understand what was you know, black, what was white, and how this stuff was supposed to unfold. And I think the, uh, the the amount of gray area that still exists leads to a lot of the speculation. And if I was in the league's shoes, that's just that you know it's easier said than done. But that's where they got to find a way to to uh, to help people understand you know where they're at, why they're doing what they're doing. 
Well, I think you can help us understand another layer of the, of the finals, which was, you know, we were, I'm just jumping around looking at, at plus minus and off and on numbers, and we just stumbled across Barbosa's uh, effect, which was very positive in the finals, yet, you know, he really didn't play a lot, and I think he even got a DMP on one of those games. So was there anybody asking, you know, Steve Kerr about the lineups and about, you know, lack of playing time for him? I don't specifically remember that question. Uh, I mean, he had an extremely positive impact when he was out there. It was pretty unbelievable to watch. It just, for a stretch there, it seemed like, you know, if he shot it, it was going in. And then a lot of questions, you know, there were certainly questions about why Azili played as much as he did in Game 7. Some Anderson, Anderson Verjao questions. I mean, Anderson had some moments, but there were other times when he was hurting them. So Barbosa getting more time, and, and, and that's not a question that we ever thought we'd be having to ask Steve Kerr because Steve has always been Leandro's biggest advocate and the guy who during the regular season took a lot of flack for playing him as much as he did. In fact, there was a kind of a, a funny dynamic, a friendly funny dynamic between Steve and one of the local Bay Area columnists who does a great job, Tim Kawakami. Kawakami was always in the beginning anyway, kind of an anti Barbosa guy. And, uh, you know, and, and Steve would always swear by him. So, not a question I thought we'd see coming, but Leandro was great, and, and whenever you lose, like the Warriors did, you're going to get some scrutiny, and this is kind of the first time that that uh, you know that Steve's had any of that. He, he had quite a nice run for two years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to throw it out there, I'm looking at the uh, Barbosa numbers. His, uh, his net rating was a positive 24.8 when he was in in those 13 minutes a game, and there was a game where he didn't even get off the bench. Whereas when he was um, on the bench, the team was negative eight and a half, which is again hard because it's such a that's a much bigger sample size. But um, yeah, it was interesting to see. Uh, you know, the the Azili one was a big one in the fourth quarter. That everyone wanted to scream at Coach Kerr about, and I felt like if he just hadn't followed LeBron James on the three point attempt, then that stint would have been fine. Um, but they gave him those three free throws on a pump fake on a shot that they would have rejoiced for LeBron to take. Yeah, I mean, that sequence, though, that was masterful on LeBron's part because I vividly remember, like, I felt like the whole world could see something that Fez couldn't see, which is that LeBron was toying with him. And it was like three straight possessions. And, you know, once he got him to bite on the pump fake and he got to the line... On the next time, they were squared up against each other. And on that switch, Azili found himself out on LeBron Island. Then you could tell that LeBron, I mean, it's kind of like the pitcher who goes to the fastball, then he goes to the curve, where LeBron now knew he's not biting again because he's he's burnt because of what just happened. So now I got space. And that's when he rised up and, and he knocked down that three. So that sequence was big. And, and you know, the Cavs kind of went cold after that. And LeBron in particular was having a hard time scoring. But, you know, from that to the block, which was obviously epic and tremendous, of Andre Iguodala on the backboard and then Kyrie hitting that dagger on the right wing. Uh, those were some pretty key segments. You know, I'm glad that they won it that way because had the Cavaliers backed into the final, to the into the win, you know, in some weird way when nobody really took the game, it would have been a little frustrating, but... Uh, to be able to witness that block, which I, I still think is probably, it, I think it has to go down as the best defensive play in the NBA Finals ever. I, I don't, I can't, nothing else really comes to mind. I know Havlicek stole the ball was not in the finals, so um, 
You know, that has to be at the top. And then to have Kyrie then hit that shot, which was not an easy shot and very, very, very clutch. Um, it, it, it gave me some satisfaction at the very least that, that the Cavaliers took the game. You know what I mean? Sure. No, I'm with you. Although the one qualifier where I feel kind of bad for Iguodala is like, man, I, I, I can't help. It's just weird how this is a life in general, not even just basketball, but like how one circumstance can lead to another, can lead to another. The, the what ifs here... What if Iguodala's back never tightened up in game six? That was a major factor. And if you watch that play, now my understanding is he did not get a shot before the game. So he's out there late in the game trying to make it happen after a game six where Iguodala, because of his back tightening up, looked like anybody's grandfather. I mean, he was hobbling around. And if you watch that play, I do firmly believe that if Andre's feeling like Andre, that he probably just dunks on J.R. Smith's head. And instead, Jr. contests a little bit. He gets Andre to basically hesitate, and, and then he gets cute with the ball, yeah. and he does that little kind of dipsy do. Yeah. I mean, he gave LeBron the time to essentially wind up having one of the best defensive plays in finals and playoff history. But the what if is always going to be in the back of my mind, and I think Andre's back played a part in that play. Yeah, I I agree. But that said. Uh, he's always been a little bit too loose with the ball handling. And we've seen sure. him, you know, in the open court, get all the ball just starts getting all over the place with him, and it's not as efficient. And, I, by the way, we went through it on our breakdown, and I watched it, and we did it frame by frame. LeBron touches that ball one thirtieth of a second before it touches the backboard. Wow. You know, it's, it's, it, it couldn't have been any closer, and yet, like, they got it right in real time, which is really amazing because you almost would have thought they could have called it and then, like, did a review. I think they could have reviewed that one. I think it was in the, yeah, it was under two minutes, and so, or whatever that rule is. And so, uh, it was just, it was incredible that he closed that much space uh, and did it, but it was, it was as, re- I mean, you know, it, these are, this is what happens, right? Draymond goes out for game five and it changes the entire series, you know, on a trifle. And then, like, you know, again, I, I would have, uh, I, what I said in the breakdown was that a two point lead at that point in the game with the way the game had been going was the equivalent of like an eight point lead at home. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that would have yeah, really yeah. gave them control of the game. It would have been huge. And I mean, I've, I've enjoyed how people have broken down that play. ESPN Sports Science had, a thing where it was like, man, Andre, they clocked him like over 20 miles an hour. I mean, LeBron, rather. LeBron was just barreling down the floor, and he covers so much ground where he's on the left side of the court, and he's a, a pretty good distance away from Andre, and then he just closes like he's Deion Sanders and gets to the backboard. So it was pretty amazing stuff. And, and you're right that the Cavs, you know, they, they kind of they shut up all the, the critics or the folks second-guessing the way they did it with the way they closed. Even with everything I'm saying about Draymond and the suspension and the what-if of this and that, I mean, I'm with you completely that it, it, it all feels a little more earned and a little more, you know, kind of right that they went out and they won it. They got it done. And, I mean, are you kidding me? Like, let's, let's not forget that when the Warriors came back from 3-1 to beat the Thunder, that was extremely impressive stuff. History was against them. You know, that that's a terrible scenario to be in, and I forget the numbers, but it's – extremely, uh, I mean, teams do not do that. But the Warriors had two of the final three games at home. For the Cavs to do it while winning two games at Oracle Arena in the final three, I mean, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way any of us saw that coming. 
Yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll never know that fateful stepping over uh, would have affected Game 5. But uh, when I broke that game down, there were, such, there were such egregious defensive breakdowns that you have to imagine don't happen because Draymond is out there, you know, pushing guys and, and, uh, and, and calling it out and talking that, uh, you know, it was definitely felt. And it was a close game up until, you know, like the, I mean, know, the fourth quarter. But I mean, Nick, I'm with you. But then, and that was kind of where my head was at. Like, there's just, and I wrote, like, this doesn't happen if Draymond's on the floor, except the only problem is, and granted, you go back to Cleveland, you know, you go back to Cleveland and you, you give up 115 points with Draymond. So, yeah. you know, 112 without him, 115 with him. And so that narrative kind of got submarined a little bit in the next game. Yeah, it, it did. Although, guess what we were missing in game six? What am I forgetting? Bogut. Oh, that's right, Andrew. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> but the, that one's even tricky to, to wrap your head around because – he was playing, you know, he had, was it, which game did he have like five blocks in the first 15 minutes? Yeah, uh, game two was what like ended the game in the first quarter almost. Yeah, yeah. So that was huge. And then, but then you'd have moments where he just wasn't getting much time and you're, you're kind of questioning. I mean, he's a really tricky one to like, yeah. how much value are we going to attach to Bogut in the matchup with the Cavs? Because we know the backstory of last year and how he couldn't even get off the bench in the last three games. Yeah. And so that obviously leads you to say this guy, you know, is not valuable in this matchup. But I'm with him. I mean, game six, Bogut not being there. I mean, the, the combination of Draymond and Bogut, arguably the two most important defenders on that Warriors team, that's tough to be without, you know, either one of those in those games. Yeah, and it was only 12 minutes a game he was playing, but really what it is is it's 12 less minutes of Veradrao and Azili. And sure. I think that's really what was the key here. And, and it, granted, what I think where Kerr got into fire as well was that maybe those 12 minutes shouldn't have simply been, uh, you know, divided among them. It should have been Livingston or, you know, really just gone small um, right. because that was the issue, I thought. You know, uh, Izzeli and Berger didn't it didn't help them much in those last couple of games. So, uh, it, you know, it was a great series. And you know what we really have now is a rivalry of which we haven't seen in a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like it. Um, I, I'm curious to see how that Warriors roster looks next year because I think it could look a little bit different. They've got eight free agents for one, so the guys on the periphery, you're going to have to watch. And the Harrison Barnes and Fezzazili, both uh, both guys are restricted. So we'll see what happens. But the core is going to be the same, and the Cavs, I think, for the most part, are going to be the same. I think J.R. Smith will come back, and uh, we'll see about about Kevin Love and if he ends up being on the move or not. But for the most part, you're right. And and we kind of wrote at our plays leading into Game 7 that no matter what happened in Game 7, that potentially, and to your point, Nick, there's a chance here that we could have the same two teams in the finals three years in a row for the first time in NBA history, which I was surprised that's never happened before with all those Lakers-Celtics mm. battles um, that we've never had the same two teams three years in a row. So that would be interesting. Absolutely, that would be interesting. Um, now, for those of you listening who don't know, Sam is as plugged in as anybody in the NBA for the latest and the greatest of uh, news. So, like, what is the Harrison Barnes story right now? What is the latest, and, and like, where's 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 he going? I mean, I just I I could be wrong. I just I'd be very surprised if they feel comfortable ultimately giving him twenty something million dollars a year and just saying let's get the band back together. I, I'm not seeing it based on the fact that what he did in the playoffs and, and and not only that but Nick kind of their internal uh chemistry and and listen last year or not last year last October when Harrison decided to break off negotiations on an extension before the season they had offered him a deal 
that very deliberately was the same exact annual salary of Draymond Green when he signed his contract last summer, which was $82 million over five years. So Harrison's annual salary was the same, and that was not a mistake. They, they know the personalities in their locker room. They know that Draymond was going to have a hard time making less money than Harrison. And, and now what's happened since then is that Harrison ends on a sour note in the postseason. Draymond, even with the suspension, continues to show that he's an elite player, and his game just took an absolute massive jump this season. So Draymond's gotten better. Harrison, is call it plateauing, call it declining, it's one of the two. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't finish strong. And you're going to come back and have him making $8 million more a year than a guy like Draymond Green? I mean, you know, Steph Curry's going to get taken care of next summer when he's a free agent, so that part doesn't really matter. Clay Thompson's got his deal that's close to the max. It's around 16. And, but even, I mean, that's even, even Clay being as selfless as he is and the understated guy, I just think it'd be a weird mix uh, to bring Harrison back with that kind of cash. And so their priority is for the Warriors is they want to go out and shock the world and sign Kevin Durant and see if they can do that. If I'm handicapping it, I don't think they will. And from there, I'm curious to see what do they look at. You know, I had one of their players kind of float a name to me that I thought was interesting because he thought it would be a good fit if they didn't bring Harrison back, which was Chandler Parsons, um, which kind of an interesting thing to chew on. You know, he's not – Harrison's probably the, the superior defender, so defensively you got to look at that. I don't know if you, – you break the tape down a lot more closely than I do. I don't know if you agree with that statement or not. But, you know, that's a guy that – who knows? Maybe, the, maybe you bring in fresh blood at that three spot instead of just bringing Harrison back. Ooh, I, I, I like that. Chandler Parsons, by the way, had shown signs before he started breaking down of being able to play elite defense. Like, I can remember if it was two years ago, I don't remember, but he was guarding Durant and doing, like, a nice job on that. Uh, and so that would be an interesting, you know, thing. So remind me, is Chandler Parsons an a, a unrestricted free agent? Yeah, he's unrestricted. He just opted out, he opted out in Dallas. So he's, he's wide open. And wow. And they, and this is ESPN's reporting, I think Tim McMahon, who covers the Mavs very closely, I believe it was Tim's story talking about how the Mavs um, are going to be targeting guys like Mike Conley and Hassan Whiteside and making them a priority. So Chandler, right out the gate here, is being asked to be patient and be put on the side, which a guy like him probably never enjoys hearing. So that's going to inspire him to be wide open and listen to anything. Wow. Well, let's talk about Conley for a second because – um, what's the latest with him? It seems like he's definitely not staying in Memphis. So where do you think he's going? I don't know. I mean, are we are we sure? I mean, I, I was leaning towards him leaving Memphis. Did I miss any any new revelations that you know? What brings you to that conclusion so so strongly? No. I don't know. I, I mean, no, nothing really. It just seems like you know, different coach. Uh, it the, the it's starting to you know, it might just be a time where you know they, they kind of got in their plateau. They, those guys aren't getting any younger. Uh, yeah. Tebow and Gasol, and um, you know it's just not quite working. Short of them signing like two elite shooters, I suppose that would really give them a jolt. So, um, no, that's fair. You know, if I were Conley, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at like the Bulls, for instance, who just got rid of Derrick Rose, and I'm thinking, gosh, that would be you know him and and uh, Jimmy Butler in the backcourt would be really good. No, I like that a lot. I mean, I, the Chicago one I hadn't chewed on very much, but I like that scenario. I talked to somebody earlier today, excuse me, just hypothetically about San Antonio as a possibility. You know, Tony Parker's been doing this a long time, and you know, but the idea of Mike Conley in that spot is pretty darn intriguing. Would um, Parker would Parker be willing to come off the bench? I don't know. I mean, probably not. To be honest with you, I, I mean, I talked to Tony last season. I mean, I shouldn't. I can't speak for him. I don't know. But last year, 
his message was that Kawhi Leonard and LaMarcus Aldridge had basically kind of got him feeling like he was sipping from the fountain of youth and that he was going to do this even for longer than he had initially kind of envisioned doing this. So, but, but you also have to also, you know, you got to always reconcile that with the state of your game and how you're playing. And he had some moments in the playoffs when he just wasn't there. It wasn't part of what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, he had some good moments too, but he's just, he's got a lot of miles on those wheels and, and Conley culturally, I think in terms of the culture of the Spurs, I could easily see him fitting in. He, he's one of those guys that, that I mean, he he's more Spurs-ish than even a LaMarcus Aldridge type guy. Mm-hmm. So that one's interesting. Um, the Knicks thing was always intriguing, but now with the Derrick Rose trade, it seems like that takes that off the table. I feel like I'm skipping over a Conley destination that, that would be intriguing. I mean, there's been some chatter about Dave Yeager comes to Sacramento with the Kings and find a way to get Mike Conley. That would surprise me. I mean, for one, I don't know. I think he was fine with Yeager, but I don't know that Yeager is a coach that he's chasing Right. With any more fervor than you know than any other coach, so you know he's going to have some suitors though. And for Mike Conley, a guy who has been overlooked a lot of his career, and a lot of times he gets left out on the All Star team because there's just too many good point guards. I'm you know for his sake, I'm kind of happy for him that because the free agency class is down a little bit this year, I think you know he's going to be able to stand out in a way that he spent most of his career not doing. Right, and that's why going like for instance the Bulls is in the East could be something really good for him too because. He'd be going up against guys in the All Star game, voting like you know Kyle Lowry as opposed to Russ, Steph, and CP3. Right. No, I mean that, that one's good. And the Memphis thing is 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 complicated. Um, it never gets old trying to interpret these different relationships between players. Like you look at, and this relates to the Conley discussion, but like Kevin Durant, part of his situation is having to know where Russell Westbrook's head is at for next summer, and then also like having to have some clarity about do I want to play with this guy, do I not, how loyal am I to this guy, what's he going to do, how does that affect what I'm going to do. So for Conley, you know, if you go back to last summer, Conley was the one saying to Marcus All, like, come on, big fella, you can't leave me. Don't leave me. You know, don't leave me behind. And now Mike's in that position. Those two guys are extremely close friends. Mm. But he's also got to look at it objectively and say, like you kind of mentioned, they seem like that core is on the downside. Part of the reason Dave Yeager is not there is because he would always complain to the media about how old they were, which the front office didn't appreciate. And (laughs) Marcus Saul didn't, you know, he's coming off a down year. He just wasn't the same guy last year that he was the year before. So if you're Mike, there's a lot of reasons to look around. Yeah, I, well, that, that'll be really intriguing, and that could shift some stuff here because the Bulls are definitely uh, you know, needing to, something to, to get them back unless they're going to tank, which I, I don't know. It doesn't feel like they're tanking just yet, but let, let's, uh, let's, talk for, let's wrap this up on, a, uh, on the Oladipo and the OKC trade because here's my, my theory. I'm wondering, you know, having been around the team, what you think because it requires someone having to been on the court. What I've seen over the last several years when I'm studying the tapes and I'm watching these national games is that – I would say at least once or twice a game, as they're going to timeout, uh, uh, Ibaka would have been in the wrong spot on, in offense, just completely lost, not screening where he's supposed to or whatever, and they're all waving and whatever, and they're yelling at him on the way to the bench, either KD or um, Russ. So my theory is that KD, in order to like stay in OKC, was like, listen, uh, get him out of here, and I'll, I'll stay. I don't know if it's that strong. I just know, and I wrote this the other day, that you know that trade was in essence Durant approved, and he wasn't on the trade call. 
They're not going to hand over the keys to the car in a formal fashion in OKC. But I can safely say all my years covering the Thunder, all the conversations I've had with them, there was more transparency about Kevin Durant's perspective on that particular trade uh, on this deal than anything else they had ever done in the past. Even the Scotty Brooks move, they, they were real reticent to say, Kevin was okay with this, and they didn't really ever say that. They they might have said it without saying it, mm-hmm. but this one was basically them being, to their credit, being genuine and kind of saying, listen, you think we'd do this if it hurt our chances with Kevin? I think we're stupid. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. Surge was, for one, a lot of this stuff and the video that you've broken down, you've seen it. I mean, it was comical to watch how frequently – You'd have Kevin and Serge yelling at each other and different guys getting mad at him for being in the different spots. You had Serge, I mean, it doesn't work really well in OKC when guys publicly complain about their roles. So even though Serge only did it once, I guarantee you that got everybody's attention. And I forget after which game, but it was when he told a lot of the local media that his defense had suffered because on the offensive end, all he did is stand in the corner and that. Is you know I didn't blame him for saying what he said because it's something that all basketball players can attest to is that your your motivation on the defensive end oftentimes is directly proportionate to your level of involvement on the offensive end and he was admitting that so but the the, the takeaway if you're Thunder GM Sam Presti is that I got a guy who's not content and he's coming up on a contract year and if we just keep the band together next summer, say Durant resigns, and now we got Ibaka and Russell Westbrook, both free agents next summer, this guy's going to want like $25 million out of me, and now i got a bad taste in my mouth because of the, the feeling of that relationship. Yeah, uh, I agree. And I don't know if it was ever like a language barrier because he, I've heard him speak, and he seems like English is a really, you know, really strong command of it, but he just seemed to never know, you know where to be a lot of the time. And it was funny because... So I guess you're seeing that as well. I'm only seeing that as a result of watching the TV. Uh, I, I've never been, I never covered an OKC game in person. So, uh, so I'm not crazy when I see that stuff. You see it as well. Yeah, no, I do. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, it's, I mean, even, even, the, I mean, the team official brought that up to me this week. You know what I mean? Like that, that there, there is substance there. That's not just you picking something off the tape. Aha. Well, so the other thing, which I think is a genius move in this, is because. In theory, the way that where the league is going, that position that um, Ibaka plays, you could probably cover that with you know somebody that can play a little defense, doesn't have to be as you know even as big as him, uh, and he can hit a three or so. But what they were really suffering, I always felt, was from that shooting guard position with having to start um, Robertson, who just was such a liability on offense. So I, I think it's pretty safe to say that Oladipo will significantly. Uh, alter the way they can approach their offensive attack, right? I agree. I'm just curious, you know, how they use Oladipo because honestly, Robertson had some good moments in the conference finals, and his offense obviously is always going to come and go. But he hit some open threes, uh, and, and we have another factor here to consider, which is Dion Waiters' restricted free agency this summer. A lot of people felt like the Oladipo move means that Dion's days are done in OKC. So then the question, I mean, the Thunder have, in years past, a lot of times they've made that tough choice to bring the more talented player off the bench. So I don't know if they, maybe I've missed it if they've spoken on this. Um, so, But, I mean, do we have clarity on whether or not Oladipo is going to be 
in that starting lineup or if they end up going the James Harden route and the Deion Waiters route and, and bringing him off the bench? Oh, I, I can't picture them starting Deion Waiters over him if that's what the, the choice is at all. And I mean, um, you know, and I think I'm saying, I mean, I'm saying Robertson. They, they love Robertson's oh, defense. Interesting. They love it. They love, I mean, they, Sam Presti, and I think the playoffs proved this to be the case, views him as an absolute, like a top five wing defender in the NBA. And so in terms of their defensive identity, that's how he looks at Andre. And I'm just spitballing. I don't know yeah. what they're going to do. But Oladipo obviously spent a lot of time coming off the bench, and he's familiar with that role. He could do it if they wanted him to. Uh, I just don't know what their plan is there. Uh, that you know, There's a lot of moving parts there because, heck, you can go small. I don't think you could start Robertson like at the power forward position and like let Oladipo start as well. Um, but because uh, I would imagine from what I've seen, I haven't studied the magic that much. It's just for whatever reason, they're just not always my radar. But uh, I have seen Oladipo be a really effective defender, probably in that realm of Robertson. You know, so you could sure. you could match Robertson's defense or somewhere close and then have, you know, there's no doubt that he is a much better offensive player. And even though he still needs to improve it. Um, so I would suspect that, um, I mean, I think what we're all saying is that not only did uh, KD approve this trade, but I think this is what means that he is going to sign at least the one-year deal and stay there for another year. That's what I'm anticipating. But, you know, I always throw in the never say never thing. I've never been in, in these guys' shoes, but I imagine, one, you know, the more you learn about these meetings with teams, it's easy to, to look at that and say, you know, it's like, this is kind of a bad comparison, but it's like you go on vacation and, and you let somebody at a hotel talk you into going to one of those timeshare presentations. And, and you <laughs> yeah. go in and you have like no plan whatsoever of getting off your wallet. And then next thing you know, you're getting off your wallet and, <laughs> yeah. and you're given your credit card. And then, you know, then you got yourself a new timeshare. And I may be saying this from experience. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so like when you sit in the room with Pat Riley, I don't think Kevin's going to Miami, but just, you know, to make the point, when you sit in a room with Pat Riley, when you talk to Doc Rivers, when you talk to Danny Ainge, um, all these different teams, when you sit there and talk to Greg Popovich and R.C. Buford and, and their team and, and Steve Kerr and those guys, he's gonna, his mind's going to be spinning, his head's going to be spinning, looking at these different possibilities. But ultimately, yes, I'm, I'm handicapping that he goes back to OKC. Okay, so let's sum this up real quick. It's the Warriors, Spurs, Thunder, Celtics, Heat, Clippers. That's the list. Who is he most impressed by in all those meetings he has? Oh, man. I mean, on track record, I think there's different versions of impressed by. I'm tempted to say the Spurs because they will impress you in a very understated way, and they they plan on bringing a group out there like they did for the LaMarcus Aldridge stuff. And a a sleeper in their group, unless this part changes, is Ime Udoka, their assistant coach. He had a major role in landing Aldridge and, and players can really connect with him, and I would imagine that he'd have that same impact on Durant, although I don't know if they have a relationship at all or not. That one comes to mind. Pat Riley's going to be impressive, but if you're Kevin, if I'm Kevin, I just it's hard not to just sit there and just think about, okay, Dwayne Wade's not got much time left. Hassan Whiteside's a free agent. You don't even know what you're doing there. Justice Winslow, uh, Winslow's a nice player, but you know he's not Russell Westbrook. He's not uh, Steph Curry, some of these other options that I have to play alongside. So Miami's going to impress you. I just think they got so much to cut through that it's going to make it challenging. Um, you know, so, I mean, I guess I, by default, I guess I'm picking the Spurs. The Warriors will be impressive. I just don't know who all's coming in their group. And to be honest, I, they've got to be a little careful because 
depending on if you, you know, if Joe Lacob's involved, like owners sometimes come in and, and are a little, their presence is a little overbearing. I don't know if that's part of the plan or not. So I, I don't know how to paint that picture. But, um, you know, I guarantee you the Spurs will come in and have a very straightforward, impressive presentation. I just, you know, I don't see him doing that after taking San Antonio out in the playoffs. I hear you. Well, speaking of impressive presentations, Sam, that was uh, extremely impressive. Thank you so much for sharing uh, all your knowledge today. Uh, it sounds like there's a lot more to talk about. The summer's going to be pretty crazy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Nick. Appreciate you, it, buddy. You got it. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel. We're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Sam? I'm in. I've always been in, Nick. You know that. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything. Safeway makes it easy to save at the pump with your club card because you can use up to 20 cents per gallon in Safeway gas rewards at participating Chevron and Texaco stations. Get more mileage out of your grocery budget, up to 20 cents per gallon. When you shop more at Safeway, you save more at Chevron and Texaco. Maximum reward at participating Chevron or Texaco stations is 20 cents per gallon in a single fill-up, up to 25 gallons. Cannot be combined with any other Safeway gas reward offer. Restrictions and exclusions apply. See complete details at Safeway.com or in store.